Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology. 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx. Com, proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 and 2021 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are broadcasting from the Bronx All Digital Studios on the campus of Ryder University. Welcome to Health 411. I'm your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health Medical Center. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and your perspective. Today, we are recording with our student producer, Daniel Gaines, and we welcome you to eavesdrop on our conversation. Today, Daniel and I are going to be talking about a disorder called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and many of you may not have heard about this, so we'll explain what it is. Uh, we'll explain what's understood about potential ways to treat it, and we'll provide some background and we will look forward to. This topic on Duchenne muscular dystrophy was a topic that Dan picked. So Dan, this was your idea. What inspired you to want to do a Health 411 program on this disorder? Well, part of what inspired me to do one was, so I was having a conversation with my girlfriend about how she did a patent a, po a project about a patent that came out on it. And then I started looking into it because I was curious. Well, you can't, you can't patent a disease that people have. Yeah. So she well, doesn't have a patent on the disease. A patent for a medication or a treatment for the disease. A potential treatment. And this is going to be important to think about because you can't patent a treatment. You patent the mechanism of action to which that potential treatment may work. Is that what you sort of meant? Yeah. Okay. So continue on. Sorry for interrupting. I just wanted to make sure we got that clear for people who are listening. Yeah, I'm not quite sure about patents yet, so I appreciate the clarification. Yeah. And so it was basically, I don't know what, do you know what the name of the drug was or the name of the company that your girlfriend was researching or any information like that that you um, can share with us? The name of the drug was RGX202. Okay, so it doesn't even have a name yet. Yeah. RGX is probably a shortened version, uh, an abbreviation for whatever company is, right? Um, and the 202 is their sort of their drug name, right? And so, and you're showing me an article that says it's a, it's a um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy gene therapy candidate, RGX202 earns often earns Orphan drug status. Okay, so what does an orphan drug status mean? An orphan drug status means that it's approved for kind of like an experimental treatment on a drug, on a disease that's really, really uncommon to the point where the pharmaceuticals would never be mass produced and thus are kind of too exp expensive to be produced in the same way a lot of pharmaceuticals are. 
Right. So what it basically is sort of saying is the disease that's targeting Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, uh, which is a severe, it's a progressive, it's a muscle wasting illness. Um, the symptoms start around two or three years of age, primarily in boys. Um, and most patients become, become dependent on wheelchairs when they're about 10 to 12 years old. And uh, most patients uh, perish between 20 and 40 years old. So this is a progressive disease, primarily of muscle tissue, uh, skeletal muscle and heart tissues are, the, are the, the main things. And a relatively small number of people have this. So it's a, um, it's a, a, a disorder yeah. that is not widespread. It's not an infectious disease. It's nothing like the COVID-19 virus. You can't catch it from people. Right. This is a disease that comes from your genetic codes. Correct. Right. And so when you hear that, what do what do you what do you hear? What do you know? Well, it's probably um, X-linked, I'd assume. Um, well, why do you assume that? It's true. It's an X-linked recessive disorder. What does that mean? Well, it's an X-linked recessive disorder. That basically is a fancy way of saying that it's you're not likely to get it. However, it passes down through the mom's genes through her X chromosome that she gives you, which is why it's less likely to occur in women because they have two X chromosomes instead of men that have an XY. Um, yes. So what you said, you didn't say anything that was factually wrong. Um, but let me expand upon it a little bit for people who might be listening. In humans, males are XY, if everything is working normally, and females are XX. So if you have a genetic disorder that is associated with the X chromosome, right? Males only have one. So if you have that recessive gene on your X chromosome, you are going to express the phenotype associated with the genotype with the genes. Right. And we'll, we'll do a little explanation of that. If you are female and everything else is working right, you have two X chromosomes. So if one of your chromosomes carries the gene mutation for the disorder, um, you have the other gene, which is fine. And if everything's working right, your body may be, may be able to produce the protein that that gene would have produced. Uh, and so what you become is what's called a carrier, is that you might not have the symptoms, right? This is like the kind of thing that, um, you know, the, the Gregor Mendel was famous for with, when he had different colored peas and peas with different, whether they were smooth or wrinkled, things like that, is that the peas, just like people, can be carriers, right, but not right. have the phenotype, not express what the gene would sort of do. And what that means is, is if, if you have a mother who's a carrier and a father who's not because he doesn't have the disease, theoretically, you could get an X chromosome from your dad. Um, and theoretically, somebody with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy could have, you know, have children. Right. Uh, but then any of the children are going to be carriers. Or ha so the females would be carriers and the males um, would have the disease. The percentage is a little bit less. So if you have a mother who's a carrier, you have about 25% chance of, of, of getting the gene 
kind of thing. Yeah. So the idea here is, is the mother's a carrier of a gene, and if that gene is passed on, there's a possibility that the offspring could have the genotype, and then the genotype could be expressed as what's called the phenotype. And that's a lot of types that get some people confused. But in a sense, what it comes down to is trying to understand what's at the cause of this um, relatively rare, and I think it's about one in five to 6,000 male births tend to have this. Um, and there's not a lot worldwide. Like you basically said, it's a relatively rare thing, even in males. But it's something that, that is, if you have it, there is no cure for it. Yeah. And there's, there are treatments for it. In fact, lifespan over the past 40 or 50 years has gotten much better. People used to die from it in their 20s. And now people are, are living to their 30s or 40s. And part of that is quality of care, a lot of other things. But there is no cure for this disease. That doesn't mean people have given up. Right. And I think the fact that, that there's a company that was trying to develop this drug for it, um, and I don't know what that drug does. Maybe you can fill us in on what its mechanism of action is. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Is, and we'll talk about so what's known about it and how that fits into normal physiology. And we'll talk about, I guess, some of the treatments that you'll tell us about based on how this, this drug works. Right. So to begin with, since we're talking about a genetic disorder, let's talk a little bit about the genes. So the standard mantra in a cell molecular biology class would be something like DNA makes, makes RNA, RNA makes, makes proteins, protein. right? You know, and the tricky part that I tell students all the time is you fill in the details. But D DNA is genetic code. That's what you inherit. And then little bits and pieces of it at a time are copied into RNA. And then RNA generates proteins and the proteins have functions in the body, in the cells. In this case, there's a gene called the DMD gene, the Duchenne muscular dystrophy gene. What that gene does is it codes for a protein called dystrophin, right? Dystrophin is a protein that is in many, many places in the body. It's primarily in muscle, both, mm -hmm. let's say, skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle. It's probably other muscle, too. There's a little bit of it in different places in the brain, but it is a gene that is spread along the uh, many, many places of the body. And the symptoms, where most people study it, is in skeletal muscle, that's voluntary muscle, like your arms and your right. legs and things like that, as well as your heart. And we're gonna see, even though this is a muscular disorder and people lose the ability to walk and slowly other things, um, there's also a cardiac myopathy that's associated with it. And there's a protein that's involved with muscles and muscle contractions. And this particular protein called dystrophin is a protein that's involved with, I've, heard, I've seen analogies, they call it sort of a shock absorber inside skeletal muscle cells. So when muscles contract, there's some different kinds of contractions of muscles. There's like isotonic, but there's also contractions where the muscle gets bigger and smaller. There's a lot of force involved in that kind of stuff. And there's um, ATP is involved, free radicals are involved, but what this, this dystrophin protein is, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in the next segment, it's sort of a shock absorber for muscle cells to prevent muscle cells that are contracting under that force from being damaged. And then there are people who, who either don't have that protein or have mutated forms of it, and that shock absorber function 
is lost. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. I know we're running out of time in this segment, but we'll come right back on Hill 411 after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We're recording from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. We're having a conversation today about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a topic that Dan was spurred on and he wanted to talk about. And so I'm providing some background. And in the last segment, towards the end of it, we basically said Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a X-linked recessive disorder that affects muscles and how muscles do. Two of the main muscles in our body are skeletal muscles and cardiac muscles. And there's a DMD gene, the Duchenne muscular dystrophy gene, that codes for a protein called dystrophin. Dystrophin is part of a group of proteins. It's actually, there's a dystrophin protein complex that's created inside uh, muscle cells and it protects them from sort of the forces generated when muscles are contracting. There's a lot of force generated by actin being involved with myofibrils contracting and releasing, contracting and releasing. And there's a protein complex that helps link the muscle cell membrane, that's called the sarcolemma, if I remember right, to the basal lamia. It sort of holds the muscles in place that allows some of that to happen. Yeah. And so there's this dystrophin protein complex that sort of, it's a, a, when we go protein complex, what that means is proteins that are sort of um, cross-linked together and they sort of form sort of a shock absorber. Now the right. dy- dystrophin protein is one of the largest human gene proteins, which means there's a lot of amino acids, it's a lot of coding sequences, right? But it's a big shock absorber in a sense for your muscle cells. And if everything is working right, these muscles can, can, you know, think about your heart. Your heart starts to beat before you're even born, which has created like problems, you know, for reproductive rights in Texas and things like that. And it's before the Supreme Court now. But your skeletal muscles also start to move a little bit even before you come out, you're wiggling around, you're doing these things. All those contractions are associated with force, which only gets more as you get bigger, you lift more and things like that. And there's a potential damage there. So this protein complex sort of protects the muscle cells from being damaged for ways that we can talk about um, later. And and it it happens in both skeletal and um, cardiac muscle cells. If the protein is either absent or the protein is damaged, which means its shape is not right or it's not the right length, it doesn't fit into this complex is right, the ability of that shock absorber function is compromised. And then instead of protecting a, the, the, a muscle cell from damage, it sort of muscle cells become damaged. And the thinking is that this is a disorder that's usually diagnosed in children um, early, like when they're around, I don't know, two years old or so, uh, when people will stop, most, most kids around that age start to walk. Children with Duchenne muscular dystrophy um, have something, I think it's called, I'm looking it up, the Gower sign. That's instead of like walking with their legs, they sort of pull themselves with their arms all around and their legs never, and the thing, the legs never start walking. And so this is sort of like 
one of a behavioral observations, sort of walking with your hands instead of with your legs. And the thinking is it's because even that early in age, this protein is not working functionally um, the way it's supposed to do. Um, and if it's completely not there or completely afunctional, you have Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. There's a lesser form of it called, I think it's Becker's muscular dystrophy. Yeah. Um, I'm in the B blanket and um, looking in there for it. Um, and what happens is it's sort of diagnosed initially um, behaviorally, and then doctors can go in and they can do genotyping and look for that gene, or they can measure something called creatine kinase, which is, a, which is an enzyme I'm willing to bet you've heard about before. How do you yeah. know about creatine kinase, Dan? Creatine kinase, it, I'm blinking right now, but it has to do with water retention. Um, it has to do with a lot of different things. In muscle cells, creatine kinase is, uh, it goes bet uh, uh, from a phosphorylated to a dephosphorylated form. And when it loses a phosphate, ADP becomes ATP, right? So it's, it's sort of in that cycle of utilization of energy in a muscle cell. If oh. creatine kinase is secreted, it's a sign of, it's used for other things too, but it's a sign of muscle damage. So if your muscles are secreting high levels of it, it means there's a lot of muscular damage going on. And so that's sort of a blood assay that can be combined with a, you know, a genotyping to look at the genes to see if you actually have a mutated gene in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. You're looking at me like you want to say something. So creatine kinase kind of works. It's basically just a protein kinase commonly found in muscles. Yes that is normally not secreted into the blood in high amounts unless there is muscle damage. Right. Okay, and if there's muscle damage, the numbers get really, really, really high. Which makes and, sense. And it, right, exactly. Now, where are we? So we have DNA makes RNA makes protein. We have a basic function of the protein, genes being what they are. Um, this protein can sometimes not do what it's supposed to do. And it has to do with the kind, the way the genes are put together. In this case, you might have like a DMD gene. Remember, that's a gene that codes for the dystrophin protein. And it has it's a very, very long gene. And I think it has, I don't know, something like 79 exons or something like that. Yeah. Now, what are exons in terms of genetic codes? Exons are parts of the genes that are spliced out during cleavage. Right. They're sort of non-functional things. But what they function as, they're non-coding regions for the proteins, but they're sort of like stop things. Right. right? You know, go, stop, keep, keep copying this gene to make, and this is one of the longest genes in the human body. So if you have abnormal stop signals, you know, the, 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 the enzymes that are involved in converting DNA to make RNA to make protein, right, might have abnormal stops so the protein could be too short. And when you start taking away bits and pieces of the production of this protein, the function becomes compromised, and then it won't do what it's do. Interestingly, we live in a world, right, I'm just giving you basic background here, where we live in a world where there's like RNA editing, where there's like CRISPR, Cas9 technology. And you've heard about that in many of your classes. What is that stuff? That stuff, well, the 
Clinical application is it's being used to target genetic disorders to kind of fix those messed up stop signs. But essentially what it does is they inject the patient or give the patient. Okay. okay, you're getting your head of yourself. You're getting into the techniques for how it's delivered. The Casper Cas9 technology, people have won Nobel Prizes for developing this stuff, is basically a way of doing gene editing, Yeah. right? It's changing um, aspects of how DNA is copied into RNA and how RNAs are pieces of RNA are copied into full-length proteins. And there are different ways of delivering these things. You know, sometimes you can go in and you can delete an extra stop exon kind of thing. You can go in there, you can um, reframe, um, you know, genetic information, nucleotides, things like that. You can cause it to skip some of these stop exons. You can... Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff. You can do knock-in technology, but the idea is the technology exists now where you can do gene editing. And we're not, this is not a genetics kind of program, but the technology exists that in living cells, you can go in and change the sort of the, the, the cells genetic code that it was provided with when the cell was created. And the interesting thing about it is, in this case, people know it's basically a X-linked recessive disorder right. linked to a single gene that creates a single protein with sort of a known function, at least in skeletal muscle and presumably in heart muscle. I think its function in the brain is in other areas of the body is less well-known, brain and retina and stuff like that. But those are not areas that primarily go wrong. The inability to walk and the enlarged hearts are bigger problems. Loss of fine motor too. Yep, those are bigger problems than what's going on in the brain. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't looking at those things, they probably are, but it's not as high priority as saying, can we in a sense, fix abnormalities in the genetic code to fix this behavioral, you know, in a sense, devastating, life-shortening disease called Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And that's sort of cool. Now, I don't know about, you know, RGX202, the the drug that your girlfriend um, identified and sparked your interest in this, but... Let's suppose I'm guessing, and we'll take. I'll let you look it up as we take a break at the end of this segment, and maybe in the next segment you can tell us, based on sort of the background of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy that I provided, how this drug might be working and how might potentially one. Now, granted, there are probably lots of things that do this. Sometimes clinical trials are started; they don't work. Sometimes things only work in a petri dish; don't work in animals or in people. And we'll talk a little bit that in the context of the scientific process after we break for some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 
1077 The Bronx or 1077thebronc.com. We are recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios on the Lawrenceville campus of Ryder University here in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp. Daniel and I are having a conversation about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a relatively rare um, muscular disorder that is caused by mutations in a single gene on the X chromosome, the DMD gene. The DMD gene codes for a protein called dystrophin, which is a very, very big protein, one of the biggest proteins in the human body. Um, you know, to give you an idea, I think it has something like 2.6 million base pairs. It's a big, long, it's a big-ass protein. Right. Right? And... The disorder happens when the genetic code that provides the information for which the protein can be built um, has some abnormalities in it. And there's been a lot of attempts to both in vitro and in animal models, um, in individual cells, to try to fix genetic mutations um, in, in, in theory, if I could fix a genetic mutation that codes for an abnormal protein, cells then would make the normal protein and then function would be restored. That's right. sort of the, the goal, right? And mm -hmm. there have been a lot of attempts, and we're going to hear about a recent attempt that Dan wanted to talk about to do that. Yeah, so this recent attempt is called RGX202. And RGX202, essentially what it does is... It tells the um, cell to create a different protein that's very similar in both structure and behavior called a microdystrophin. And they're saying that it also does some other things like help code for some original components of dystrophin. Uh, I found it interesting because it actually worked in a mouse model, which. Okay, so so what I'm what I'm what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is that um, the, you have to think about what's happening and the delivery system. Right. They're not using a CRISPR Cas9 system to deliver these things. They're using a different delivery system to deliver alterations of genetic information to target cells. In this case, they're using an adenovirus, which is what viruses are, is that they're, they're organisms that live on this planet that are experts uh, in injecting their genetic information into host cells or other kinds of cells. And then what normal viruses do is the, their the genetic information that they inject into the cells sort of takes over the machinery of a cell and creates more virus particles. It ends up being that adenoviruses are relatively, not completely harmless, but relatively oh, harmless yeah. uh, viruses that can be used as delivery systems for genetic information. So right. in this case, they're using adenoviruses to deliver right, a drug which has information about what that cell is going to do. So it provides a sort of a change in genetic code for the cell. And so the idea would be if I can identify what the genetic problem is, I can use an adenovirus to inject sort of a repaired genetic code into the cell. The cell will use that information from 
this drug and start making appropriate proteins. And sometimes that it's usually tested. Theoretically, it might work great, but the real test first would be like in vitro. You find cells that have the genetic problem or you have cells that have a, a different protein. Can I have the cell t use the information that I'm injecting into it as part of its normal function and stuff like that? It sounds like that's sort of the approach that this thing you wanted to talk about is doing. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. And it kind of makes me wonder, because this approach is very similar to the approach we take with a lot of vaccines, where we kind of get the shell that acts as a virus and injects the codeine. It kind of makes me wonder if this would be a long-term treatment or if this would be a multiple dosages over a period of time. Well, you're getting ahead of yourself, right? Um, vaccines don't necessarily... Vaccines... There are vaccines that can work that way, um, but don't confuse people about like current vaccines that are yeah. being used right now. They don't work. They are not using adenoviruses. They're not changing the way the cells, the normal cells in your body are working. There are no genetic manipulations of the um, RNA vaccines that are that are out there now. Yeah, that's um, there's, so you, you don't go down that path. You're going to confuse the bejesus out of people. Those are vaccines that are taking um, properties of what the immune system already does, right? And the, the immune system recognizes foreign proteins in your body and then generates antibodies, it generates, like in this case, you have the a spike protein for the coronavirus. If I put in the, the genetic information for that spike protein, now my own immune system is going to take this advantage of what it normally does, generate antibodies against those spike proteins. Don't go down that path. You got to be really, and being, what we're talking about in Health 411 is, you know, health information that's going to be appropriately conveyed to people who might be listening. You you got to be really careful about that, right? Modern, the vaccines like in this pandemic are not doing that. However, these, um, in mouse models, you can use these, these viruses to deliver like CRISPR um, and things like that to target cells, to target changes in the way the cells work. I think that's what you wanted to say. Yeah, I was just referring to the idea of having sort of a shell that allows it to inject something into the cell. Right, and that's all the adenoviruses. It's a relatively benign. Um, and it wasn't always. I mean, going back, you know, 40 years ago, there were some bad things happening, but I think scientists have sort of, sort of worked that out. Well, I think also what Dan was trying to say is that there are uh, myopathies are sort of a general word for muscle disorders um, because people for years have been studying the protein-protein interactions that are involved in um, um, muscle contractions and diseases associated with that. And in mouse models and in in vitro, there are good delivery techniques to change you know, the expression of the proteins that are involved in uh, muscle, um, muscle disorders, like congenital muscular dystrophy, type 1A. Um, mouse models have been used. There's been other kinds of muscle disorders that have been studied and other proteins where cells that haven't made them have been turned on to make certain kinds of proteins. So the thinking is, is that if in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, we know what the protein is. There's good evidence that the technology works. And it works not just in vitro, but it also works in some animal models. Um, you right. mentioned mice. 
um, in scanning the literature and the background for anticipation of talking today, I saw some dog models where they, you know, dogs have been had sort of the dystrophin genes knocked out that you can you can actually get the muscles making this stuff again. But you, you, the second half of what you said is sort of interesting. It's the idea of when do you do you, when do you treat and how do you treat? How often you need to treat? Because um, remember, all the cells in your body are going to have the same genetic information, but not all the cells in your body are going to make dystrophin. And so when you come up with things like, you know, a drug that's going to cause it, you have to think about delivery. You have to think about, am I going to affect all the cells in the body? Do I want to affect just the cells that um, are muscle cells or just the heart cells? And that brings up some, um, you know, um, a whole bunch of issues that should be thought about when one is going to look at genetic modifications. You're nodding, Dan. So is that, is that what you were trying to say? Yeah. So, so run with that. <clears throat> yeah, what I was kind of more trying to point out is, um, you know, when you administer something that kind of causes a chain in, change in gene expression, that change may... There's that change isn't always, you know, a forever change. So, what I was kind of curious, and what I am kind of curious, and I think we're gonna kind of see, is in these models how prominent and how long of a change is it? Because realistically speaking, even when it comes to humans. That's something that needs to be considered. Am I going to do this once, or is it something that I need to make sure I'm on top of? Okay. Uh, you also have to be very, very careful in the way you talk about this. So I'm just going to say it again, because one of the fears yeah. that people have is they're, going to get, they're getting vaccinated or getting some treatment like that, and they're going to experience permanent, GNA, per, permanent genetic changes that are going to influence their fertility yeah. they're going to influence a whole bunch of things so dude you got to be really careful how you talk about this and how you present it and so i'll give you something to think about think about it in the break we'll come back for our last segment um on health 411 after some brief underwriting announcements you're listening to 1077 the bronc and 1077 thebronc.com there's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. From the Digital Bronx Studios at Ryder University, you're listening to Health 411. Daniel and I are having a conversation about Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a... X-linked genetic disorder that's associated with a protein called dystrophin that is part of a complex of proteins that help prevent muscles, whether they're skeletal muscles or cardiac muscles, from damage during the forces of con continued contractions all the time. If the shock absorber, this complex, is not working right, cells undergo damage and they eventually go undergo atrophy, atrophy or they stop working. And this results in um, elevated serum creatinine kinase levels because the cells are damaged and they're sort of crying out for help. There's cardiomyopathy, um, which is a disease of the heart muscle. There's muscle 
you know, a hypertrophy of like calf muscles. There's some cognitive impairment and things yeah. like that, but are you read about and stuff, but are not the major things that are focused on a disease. Children who have this disease are primarily male, which is relatively rare, um, but are primarily male because it's a recessive disorder and males only have one X chromosome. Um, and an interesting thing about it is, is that, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, people with Duchenne muscular dystrophy died basically as late teens, early 20s. But now people are living into their 30s or 40s with this, this, this disorder. And it's not right. just because wheelchairs have gotten better in terms of technology. What are some of the things that you found, Dan? Well, I also found that a lot of the focus on this disease, you know, a lot of us, we hear someone oh, make sure your diet, et cetera, is good, and you'll and it'll help you be healthier. But with this disease, a lot of it is, you know, treatment based on rehab therapy, treatment based on making sure that, like, monitoring what's going on in your neuroendocrine system, making sure your hormone levels are where they should be, treatments focusing on making sure that you're eating right, et cetera, et cetera. And those are actually shown to be pretty effective, which is important because as, you know, we've kind of seen they're just now coming out with something that might help that isn't necessarily more of a care management type of treatment. And so you bring up an interesting thing because what you're pointing out is that treatments um, for somebody who has a disorder, um, even one where there, there is no established treatment that's a cure, there are things that under an umbrella of what might be called quality of life issues that people can engage in um, can actually promote survival or, you know, because it's not just that we want to live longer, but we want to have a quality of life that's better while we're living longer. Right. Right. And, you know, you know, so living long, if you have 30 years of extra life and you're in a diaper drooling and you don't know who you are, what's going on, you don't know who's taking care of you or anything, that might not be a high quality of life, even though you are technically living longer, right? Um, and so part of quality of life issues are some of the things that you were describing that are helpful in the treatment of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Is that what, right. is that what you're sort of want to get at? Yeah, and it's also kind of interesting because in a bit different of a setting when I was flipping through different articles of people talking about their experiences having loved ones with it. Some of those, like, there was a pharmacist who's, you know, there's a lot of variability of things like these, but there's a pharmacist who had a son who was 30 who was still able to hang out with friends and have a job. Meanwhile, I compare that to another article where there's a woman who's, who has a 10-year-old son who can't really even play with Legos. Okay, so you're talking about some individual case study examples of somebody with Duchenne's right. muscular dystrophy. Um, and those things, are, you can learn from case studies. Um, you can, you know, they're interesting news reports. They're interesting, you know, you have you know, children who can't play with Legos versus people who are in their 30s. And based on your knowledge, why do you think the spectrum of how this disease works is so different between those kinds of people? It's probably partially due. It's 
due to a mix of things, I think. It's due to, you know, how strict the people follow the regiment and how good the people around them are at finding the care regiment. It's due to diagnosis, how well can some how well, how fast can someone be diagnosed. And it's also genetic variability. There's gonna be a lot of variability between subjects as humans because we're such complex and variable creatures. Okay, yeah, but that's so in the in the way that we've set up Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, we, we can we can do better than that. What yeah. we can say is you have a you have R, you have genetic information that's gonna code for RNA to make protein. You have one of the biggest proteins that's in the human body, this big long sequence of things, right? You have a function of this protein. So how severe and how early the most severe things could be could be the nature of the mutation that's causing the abnormal protein. Right. Certainly a the child who's nine years old and can't play with Legos, can't move or maybe can't walk on his own or her own, probably his own, based on the excellent connect, you know, that person probably has more mutations in a less functional dystrophin protein than somebody else. The patient who lives into his 30s maybe makes it to 40. Remember, there's no treatment for this. There's no cure of it. And even in addition to the experimental medicine that you mentioned before, there are some medications from the, that have been approved by the FDA, right, as orphan drugs. They're not all these super high-end, you know, experimental stuff like the one that you, that you mentioned that doesn't even have a name yet. It just has like a pharmaceutical company abbreviation and a number. The so the idea being maybe the severity of the disease has to do with how let me use this terminology how bad the mutation is in the dystrophin protein how dysfunctional it is because it's not a binary thing where the protein works or it doesn't work there might be intermediate states depending on the nature of the mutation you know, do you know what I mean that could lead to the sever to the, to the severity of it yeah right and that could interact with what I where I thought you were going to go with some of these quality of life issues, um, you know, uh, related to what might be called epigenetic influences on what your genes and what your your, your things are doing. It's an interesting thing. Often um, in movement disorders, certainly even after a stroke or something like that, what you want to do is get people up and moving and exercise being really, really good. But here, theoretically, you might be in a conundrum with people with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy because the more you move, if your muscles are damaged by the movement, that in theory, I thought you were going to I thought, yeah, that's, where the, yeah. that's the interesting paradox where I thought you were going to go with that, but you didn't. Um, the interesting thing about this, like we set up in previous segments, is with the development, with the technology, a lot of students, I see this all the time, don't like to study technology, don't like to study methods in classes. Oh, it's just a method, blah, 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 blah. But in this case, it's, you know, with the development of genome editing methods like the CRISPR-Cas9 and other ways with delivery systems using adenoviruses, um, you can make you know, targeted mutations in the genome. And that's actually pretty cool. You know, targeted mutations in the genome can theoretically, you know, fix, you know, the, the, fix the genome, you fix the RNA, and then you might make fully functional, appropriately folding kinds of proteins. And I was warning you, you have to be sort of careful about that because editing the genome, for people who are not, don't talk about this and, you know, 
biology classes or behavioral neuroscience classes, people get scared, right? They think, oh my God, if I, if I edit my genome, I'm gonna become infertile or I'm gonna lose those kinds of things. Um, and it scares uh, the bejesus out of people. So, listen, you know, so word to the wise, both to Dan and the listeners, um, think about that as we talk about it. The, techn- the technology is actually sort of cool, but you know we have to do it in a way that people understand it, control it, and you only want to do it in the cells that you know need to be fixed. Because right. you don't want cells that aren't you know um, you know aren't converting you know, or aren't making dystrophin proteins to start making them, because then cells be- could become abnormal. I think that's sort of what you were getting at. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because. One of the things I saw is there's a lot of different forms of dystrophin based on where it's produced in the body. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was saying before. It's concentrated on skeletal muscle and heart muscle because those are the things that go wrong in people who have it. But the dystrophin protein is made in different places. Right. Its role in you know specific areas of the brain, the retina and the cerebellum, is not, not as so well studied. People don't know what it's doing there. You also have the difference between um, you know, in this case, when you're talking about organisms reestablishing that protein, you're basically talking about post-mitotic cells. You want to create the ability of these cells to make the protein when they weren't making it before, weren't making it in the right form. If you did that early in development, you know, you started forcing cells to make the dystrophin protein, you don't know what's going to happen to them. And that's yeah. the kind of thing studies would have to be done to figure out when's the appropriate time to do it, where to do it. Um, and we're sort of at a place where we have proof of, proof of concept um, for being able to change these sort of things. Um, not necessarily proof of efficacy in terms of treating the disease. Right. So that makes sense? A lot of mm-hmm. warnings here. So. Cool topic, but I, I'm encouraging you and other students to be very careful about how you think about these things. Because science pushes the boundary between what's known and unknown. So you have to be very careful you don't overstate it or misstate it because unknown things make people nervous. Right. Okay, so Dan, unfortunately we're running out of time. So this is the 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 end of this portion of Health 411 and 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. We're recording from the new digital Bronx studios. Health 411 is part of Capital Health and Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and healthcare. We hope today's conversation has given you things to think about in terms of Duchenne's muscular dystrophy specifically and you know, genome-wide changes for diseases. In, um, and if you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the weekend rewind edition of Health 411. Health 411 on 1077th the Bronx is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology.